Thanks, Sam and the team for leading us this morning. Good morning, everybody. If you don't know me, my name's Tony, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I've got the joy of uh, opening God's Word with you this morning. That was read to us a little while ago from Acts chapter 15. I don't know which subject was yours when you were at school, but the subject that I was most competent at, um, that I was strong at, was maths. I was good at maths growing up. Um, Sadly, in high school, I didn't really apply that acumen, um, and so my grades didn't reflect it. But I was told many times, you're good at maths. I don't know what yours is. That was mine. Uh, But one thing I didn't realise, that there was a different kind of math that I would learn later in life, a type of math unlike normal maths that would change my life forever. And a math that's been radically changing people's lives ever since the death and resurrection of Jesus. You might call it gospel math. Gospel math. It's a simple equation that actually changes everything. What is gospel math? Well, it goes like this. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Not rocket science, on the one hand. Pretty straightforward. Doesn't even have any algebra in it. But deeply powerful in the lives of those who grasp it. Deeply powerful in the lives of those where that equation lands. And that's exactly what we see here today in Acts chapter 15 in what I reckon could be the most pivotal church meeting of all of history. Right? We have quarterly members meetings every, four, every, every quarter, four times a year, right? That's why they're called quarterly. This meeting here is critical. The context that we have is where we've been for a few weeks, really, since Acts chapter 10. Do you remember what happened there in Acts chapter 10? Peter, through divine intervention, had to be persuaded by God to go and to speak the good news of Jesus to Gentile people, that is to non-Jewish people, people who would never normally kind of interact with and certainly wouldn't eat with and certainly wouldn't think could ever be part of the covenant people of God. Peter, convinced by God to go there, goes and speaks to them about Jesus and they respond in repentance and faith and he sees that the Holy Spirit of God actually comes on these people and he has to reach the conclusion at this point that God is granting even non-Jewish people the possibility of knowing him and being in relationship with him together with all his people from all time. People are putting their faith in Jesus, experiencing God's salvation and rescue. People who were previously regarded as unclean and defiled and outside of God's people, they're now being brought into the people of God. And so the question for Jewish believers is this. What do we do with them? What do we do with them? What should they be required to do? How much of what we have done in our relationship with God and in our laws and ways should they be required to do? And the issue's been building and building. I think it's about three years between Cornelius' house and where we find ourselves today in Acts chapter 15. It's been building and building and it reaches boiling point. Do you see it there in verse 1 and 2? 
We read, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Verse 2, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension with them and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. It's really Really important. This is a massive question. Although on the surface it just seems like, oh, should they follow this ceremonial tradition from the past? Should they do that, circumcision in this case? But the question that's really being asked underneath this will affect the church's mission forever. And it's this question. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? And under that question, two sub-questions. How are people saved on the one hand and how do people grow in their faith on the other? How are people saved on the one hand and what marks them out as one of God's people and how do people grow in holiness? How do they become more like Jesus and please God with their lives? These are, these are the questions that, are, that they have to answer, that are being asked and they have to answer and are answered in our passage today. And as they're answered, we're going to see two really big things that I want us to see this morning. And the first is this. The beauty of salvation through Christ alone. The beauty of salvation through Christ alone. What is salvation? What is the gospel? Well, we've seen it through the book of Acts so far, haven't we? It's the message that they've been proclaiming. What is that message? It's the message of Jesus, God's Messiah, come to earth, crucified as a sacrifice of atonement for our sins on the cross, risen from the dead and resurrected, and then ascending into heaven and reigning and working out his purposes now in the world through his people until he returns. What does it involve, this gospel? What's at the heart of it? Well, have a look at verse 11. We're going to come across this verse quite a bit this morning. Peter says, But we believe, we, that is the Jewish apostles, believe that we will be saved or rescued by God. How? Through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Through the unmerited favour of Jesus. The unearned, undeserved, as we heard earlier, kindness of God through Jesus. What else does it involve? What it, this gospel involves God at work in your life to take you as a person, as to become part of a people for his name. We see that in verse 14. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles. He's actually referring back to Cornelius' house. He's going, this is what happened. How God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name, people to belong to God as part of his family. It involves, get this, cleansing your heart by faith. See that in verse 9, verse 8 and 9. God who knows the heart, which is a little bit unsettling, right? He knows what you think. He knows what's happening at the core of your being. God who knows the heart bore witness to them, that is the people at Cornelius' house, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and he has made no distinction between us and them, Jew and Gentile, having cleansed their hearts by faith. 
wow, what can get rid of all that stuff that's in us, that we know is there, that sometimes is nauseating? What can, what can wash that away? What, no, you can't. No one else can. But God can through his son Jesus as you trust in him and depend on him. Cleansing the human heart by faith. And giving you, verse 8, the Holy Spirit. Think about that for a minute. God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternal God, in perfect relationship with each other. And when we come to know Jesus and put our faith and trust in Jesus, what happens? He gives you the Holy Spirit. He gives you the third member of the Trinity to take up residence in you, to be with you, to dwell in you. He gives you himself. And according to verse 15, 16, and 17, this is not some new radical thing that's just kind of popped up out of nowhere. This was always part of God's unfolding plan. Verse 15, And with this the words of the prophets, all the prophets of the Old Testament, agree. They agree with this. It is written, After this I will return, I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the non-Jews who are called by my name. It's utterly consistent with what God always planned. This is the beauty of salvation through Christ alone. How rich is this? How multifaceted, how beautiful. The beauty of it is actually breathtaking if we'll take enough time to stop and have a look. Almost too good to be true. So good, perhaps it's even difficult for some of us to accept. Is God really that good? Is God really that kind? Is God really that gracious? Is he really that loving towards us who have not given him the time of day and lived for ourselves and not given him the glory that's due to his name? Is he really that kind? And the answer from the apostles themselves is a resounding yes. He is. Praise his name. This is the beauty of salvation through Christ alone. But how does it come to us? How do we receive it? This wonderful, rich, beautiful salvation, how does it become ours? Is it by keeping you know, a, a set of rules, a list of do's and don'ts? Is it by observing religious practices, you know, maybe turning up at church regularly or, or, or being involved in something during the week or reading my Bible or coming to the prayer meeting tomorrow night? Is that how this salvation comes to us? Is it by keeping the law, the Old Testament law? Do we have to make sure we do all that and then we'll receive this beautiful, rich salvation? We might not think of circumcision, but you know, maybe I've heard people say, oh, well, you know, I probably should get baptised. Because then I'll be, then I'll be right. Baptism is a wonderful thing, but it's not the pathway to salvation. It's actually the expression of salvation once you've experienced it. That that's what these 
leaders are saying here, aren't they? Unless you do this, you cannot be saved. Essentially, they're saying Jesus plus nothing isn't everything. It doesn't equal that. And important to note, these are men who know the Bible well, who know the Scriptures. And people who know the Scriptures may say all sorts of things, today even. What do the apostles say? What do they say? Well, verse 10, Peter says, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we are able to bear. (laughs) Essentially saying, guys, why are you testing God? Because God's done everything that's needed and you're telling him it's not enough. And secondly, you've never done this, so why are you expecting others to do this? Verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus. See, God's law is too glorious for sinful human beings to keep. You can't do it. That's what he says. We, our fathers couldn't do it. We can't do it. Do you think they're going to do it? Church or non-churched? Christian home or not? Successful in this life or not? No matter who you are, you cannot be saved by your efforts, by your best attempts. Salvation cannot be found there. All that the law does actually, and it does it wonderfully, it highlights our need for a saviour, for someone outside of ourselves to rescue us. And so Peter says, salvation is through the grace of the Lord Jesus for all people. And that's exactly what he saw at Cornelius' house, wasn't it? Did they do anything? They heard the message. They went, I'm going to pin my hopes on that, on that Lord Jesus that I've just heard about, who is God become man, who has died for my sins and risen again. Yeah, if I'm going to put my hope anywhere to be saved, it's going to be there. And the Spirit of God came on them and they became part of God's people. Peter has seen the beauty of salvation through Christ alone. And don't ever forget where he came from. He was a very committed Jewish follower. How does this salvation come to us, to me and to you? It comes to us by faith and faith alone in Christ. By putting your hope and trust in him. This is the beauty of salvation through Christ alone. Now, I don't know how many of you actually have been, but apparently you can still go to what I think is called Van Gogh Live in Perth. Uh, It's this big exhibition. From what I can tell, I haven't been. Maybe you can tell me more about it afterwards. But it's this big exhibition of the works of Van Gogh um, put through kind of media savvy programs that help you see it very, very clearly and enjoy it in perhaps a fresh way than you might have if you just went to the gallery and I was thinking the other day maybe I wonder what would happen if little Tony Spencer that's me uh, from Gosnells got on the train and went into Van Gogh live and uh, went in there and said oh can I can I speak to whoever's kind of running the show and 
And they said, sure, okay, yeah. So they got me, whoever's running the show, and I, and I, and I said to them, look, you know, I know this is pretty good, but I'm just wondering, would you mind letting me into the control room? Um, because I reckon I can kind of improve a little bit, both, both on the way you've put this together in terms of your media production, but really even the Van Gogh stuff itself, I think, I think there's a few kind of areas where it's, bit, it's a bit lacking, and if I could just get and, and kind of play with the computer a bit and kind of touch it up, we, then it would be really good. I wonder what they would do to me. I can see myself being escorted from the building um, because what, what would I be doing if they let me do that? Well, I'd be trashing the work of the artist, wouldn't I? I'd be trashing the work of the artist, of what he's done. And so it would be absolutely foolish for me to do that and actually deeply offensive as well <laughs> to Van Gogh, even though he's not around to defend himself. You see, when you go to a place like that, your purpose is not to improve the work of the artist. Your purpose is to admire it and to enjoy it and to embrace it. Friends, there's no greater artist than God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Just have a look outside when you leave church this morning. His work is pretty good. And what he's done on the cross for you and for me is breathtaking. So let's not try and improve it with our little efforts here and there. Because that would be foolish. And do you know what foolishness goes hand in hand with in the Bible? Unbelief. So it would really be foolish. It would be not believing, not trusting in the perfect work of Jesus. And actually it would be offensive by himself if we tried to improve what he's done. So let's just admire it. Enjoy it. And embrace it and receive it. You can't save yourself by your good living, by your performance, by your best efforts. But the problem is we have this tendency to try and be our own saviour, don't we? You know, there are two types of sinners. There are respectable sinners and not so respectable sinners. And this topic is hard for us anyway. But it's probably even a bit harder for respectable sinners because we kind of look good. You know, it's not obvious that we have a need. Not even obvious to us. But the truth is, we're all sinners. And we need a saviour. Verse 10. Why are you putting this on their necks? They couldn't do it, neither can we. Why do you think they can? And yet, you know what? Sometimes I'm like, I think I reckon I can give it a crack. <laughs> I reckon I can probably do all the things I need to do. I want to ask you, have you seen the beauty of salvation through Christ alone? That Jesus plus nothing really is everything. 
The salvation that God has done for you is there for you to admire and rejoice in and be changed by and be affected by and to rest in. Well, let me put it another way. What gives you hope that you will be saved? God, if you were to die tonight, and you know, I hope you don't, but if you were to die tonight and you found yourself standing before God and he said to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? What would you say in answer to that question? I want to suggest to you, if you say anything other than because of Jesus and his saving rescue on the cross, you haven't yet seen the beauty if you say, oh, because I do this or because I do that or, you know, because I don't do that, you've missed it. You've missed it. It's still there for you to actually be captivated by. It might sound too good to be true. That's part of the problem with it as well, I think. But God really is that good. <laughs> He really is that kind. He really is that gracious. If you're not convinced, just have a look at the cross. Have a, have a, have a think back on those words we just sung in the lead up to this message. See him there. Is God good? You bet he is. That's the beauty of salvation through Christ alone. The second thing I want us to see in this passage this morning, oh, sorry, there's, there's our Van Gogh picture I was meant to show you that can't be improved. Second thing I want us to see is the power of salvation through Christ alone. Because we've seen what the gospel is so far, and we've seen how we're saved, but we come to the, the critical question that they're dealing with, and that is how do we grow? How do we grow in our holiness in, as Christians? How do we fight sin in our lives and pursue God and so on? I mean, they've got all these brand new believers. Can you imagine what it would have been like? Like new believers everywhere, oh, discipleship nightmare, what do we do? How do we help these people mature? How do we get them going? You know, do we start 17 new groups? I don't know, what do we do? It'd be a great problem to have. Notice what the, the apostles tell them not to do. They don't just say, well, obey this and obey that and obey something else. What do they ask them to do? Well, have a look at verse 20. Actually, verse 19, this is James, who's the leading kind of elder, if you like, shepherd of the Jerusalem church. He says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of, of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. It's a bit weird. It's probably not what I would have come up with, with a whole bunch of new believers. Here's my, here's my discipleship course, you know. Stick away from things polluted by idols and sexual immorality. I might have covered that one. And from what has been strangled and from blood. Hmm. Why do you think they came up with those things? Well, it's because all of these things are closely linked with their pagan background and their temple worship. They were Gentiles. They were part of a pagan kind of setup, a pagan culture. And so all of these things are things that they would have participated in at the temple 
which was massive in the center of most cities or several of them in the cities. And they would have gone there and as part of their worship, they would have participated with the temple prostitutes and offered up kind of their sexual immorality as a worship sacrifice to the gods. They would have offered up uh, food or uh, animals to the gods. They would have drunk the blood of those animals. It was all part of their pagan festival. And so the apostles say, well, this is what we're going to tell you to do, to abstain from those things which were part of your previous life of worship. Until when they heard and responded to the gospel, remember their hearts were cleansed by faith. And not only were their hearts cleansed, but their hearts were reorientated from their idolatry to the true and living God. This is what happened in another city, pagan city. Paul writes, speaking about the effect of the gospel for they themselves, that is the effects, report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned from idols, here it is, to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So can you start to see what James and the others are doing here when it comes to them growing in their holiness? He's saying that the key to their progress in true holiness is actually true worship. True worship. That the battle for holiness in their lives is going to be won or lost on the contours of their hearts. What does Jeremiah say? The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Above all things, who can know it? What does Jesus say? Out of the heart comes murders, adulteries and thefts and lies and so on. Proverbs says, out of the heart springs the issues of life. And when you come to know God through Jesus, what does he do? He cleanses your heart and reorientates it towards the true God. And that flows out into your life and what you pursue and what you desire and what you long for now and what you want. I think I've shared this before. I remember for a long time thinking, I don't think I want to become a Christian yet because I'm going to have to give up this and this and this and this and this. And then when I finally did become a Christian, I didn't want to do any of the this, this and this and this. And I'm like, ah, why do I wait so long? What happened? God cleansed my heart and reorientated it towards him and gave me new desires and longings. Now we have to keep fighting that. But that's what happened. Someone has said we worship our way into sin and we need to worship our way out of it. In one sense, everything is a worship issue. We are perpetual worshippers. I don't know whether you know that. It's not that we go at some point in the week and we worship. No, we're worshipping all the time. The question is, what are we worshipping? Interesting, the first commandment says something very much along these lines, doesn't it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And love your neighbour as yourself. 
You see, it's not that the law is bad. As Paul says, the law is good. The, sorry, the law is good. But when it comes to growing as a Christian, the question becomes this. Not what should I do, but what will change my heart? And then what I should do will become patently obvious as your heart's made new. Not just once, but continually and progressively. See, this is what's wonderful about the power of salvation through Christ alone. He doesn't just save us from our sins, which would be probably enough. He makes us new on the inside and brings us back into right relationship with him where we love him and we're loved by him and our worship is where it should be rather than all over the shop. Did you see the outcome of their instruction in verse 28 and 29? Verse 27, We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality, there they all are. Here's the outcome. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. You will do well. Farewell. That's it. That almost sounds too simple, doesn't it? Why are they so confident about that? You will do well. They don't say, we hope you do well. They say, you will do well. Because they know the power of salvation through Christ alone. They know that through faith in Jesus, God cleanses idolatrous hearts. They know that through faith in Jesus, God reorientates our worship. They know that through faith in Jesus, we can actually worship our way out of sin. They know that through faith in Jesus, he will powerfully transform our lives so that we might increasingly love him and more clearly live for him as our days unfold. Do you see how awesome the good news of Jesus actually is? It's not only breathtaking in its beauty, it's explosive in its power to change. You might might not be aware, but apparently the world is facing a global energy crisis. And there's going to be two main issues that we'll experience, perhaps not so much in Australia, but certainly other parts of the world will. Maybe we will as well. Two issues, the the reliability of supply and the surge in prices. And it's interesting, I don't think we've ever really thought about this before. We just take it for granted. Turn on the switch, lights go on. Turn on the heater, flames come out. Just take it for granted. But when you hear of energy crises, you start to realise, hey, we're a bit reliant on that. And if that stops, everything's going to come to a screeching halt. And maybe it will, maybe it won't. But the good news of the gospel is this, there's no shortage of the power of God that we need more than any other. No shortage. The price has been paid so that we can receive it. The power of God through Christ to reorientate and renew our hearts is 
unfathomable, immeasurable. So let me ask you, as I ask myself this week, what are you in most need of his heart-transforming power just now? What are you worshipping? What do you need to turn away from? The, the Christian life is marked by turning to God from idols. Again and again and again and again and again until you, until you're right standing in front of him you're like, why did I even turn from him in the first place? Is it the idol of acceptance that you need to turn from? Desperately needing the acceptance of others. So much so that you will do anything to get it. You'll, saying, you'll say what others want to hear. And you definitely won't say what they don't want to hear. Maybe you'll be all over Facebook posting frantically, just hoping to get that extra like. Oh, I love heart, it'd be good. If I could get just a love heart, maybe two love hearts. Maybe the face with double love hearts. Or Instagram. I, I don't even know what I haven't been on Instagram, so I'm not I'm completely oblivious, but I think I'm grateful about that. But no no. It's like these are all good tools, right? But they can become idols. They can become a place where I'm trying to get it, I'm trying to get acceptance. I'm grasping for it. What are you worshipping? What do you need to turn from? For those of us who've been around the church for a while, maybe it's the idol of being right. Doing things the right way. Being theologically right. Striving to do everything correctly. And putting pressure on others around us to do the same. Putting a yoke on others that you're actually not able to bear yourself and we don't actually do. But we think we are and we think everyone else should. Our goal becomes not loving others and building them up in Jesus but getting them to agree with us and to do what we think is right as well. Maybe that's the idol we're struggling with. If that's our idol, you know what's going to happen? If it hasn't happened already, you're going to end up completely bereft of joy. And you'll either be full of despair or full of pride. And maybe switching between the two, depending on the day. What are you worshipping? What do you need to turn from? I wonder, is it the idol of finding identity and security in your success or your financial position? So that you'll do anything for all that it brings you, the power, the esteem... The horrible thing about idolatry is this. Every day you'll make costly sacrifices at this altar. Family, relationships, faith, you don't have time for God, don't have time for fellowship with other believers, certainly don't have time for ministry, for serving. Or for mission, reaching out to others. What's that? I've got, to be, I've got to be successful. Maybe it's the idol of appearance. 
think this is a pretty big one this day, these days. I'm just gauging that on the amount of gyms that have popped up in the last five years. You've got every type of gym under the sun. You've got 24-7 gyms. You've got you know, normal hours gyms. You've got gyms with pools, gyms without pools, gyms with classes, gyms without... Just take your pick. Maybe it's appearance. Maybe you're finding your identity in how you look. Your abs, Maybe. Maybe. Very few people who can find their identity in their abs, but anyway. Your hair and your makeup. Your weight loss. Your guns. And on and on it goes. And every day you make costly sacrifices at this altar family, relationships, faith. Don't have time for God. I've got to go to the gym. I've only been seven times this week. What are you worshipping? What do you need to turn away from? The truth is we're all susceptible to the idols that are around us every single day. We really are. But the good news is the power of Christ can transform our hearts and keep transforming them. Through faith in him, our hearts can be cleansed from the defilement of whatever it is we're currently worshipping and reorientated to him. Initially, when we first become Christians, and then each day he gives us after that. So let me ask you this question. How's your gospel math going? You don't actually need to be good at maths for this one. Better, you've got to be good at implementing the equation, but you don't have to be really super intelligent to get the equation. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Has it landed for you? Do you really believe that? It's easy to say. Do you really believe that? Because if you do, I want to venture to say you will, you will have joy and you will be encouraged. And rather than go backwards in your holiness, you'll have a renewed passion to turn from idols and to serve the true and living God. You'll be freed up to do that. I don't know whether you noticed how things finished after this event. Verse 30. So they were sent off and they went down to Antioch and gathered the congregation there. Imagine the anticipation. I wonder what they're going to tell us. They've been up to that big meeting in Jerusalem and they're coming back. What are they going to tell us to do? They delivered the letter and when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They were full of joy and they were encouraged. Because they realised and, and it was made clear to them that because they have Jesus, they have all they need.